Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Good morning. You may be seated, except for our children and our students. So you can go to your learning environments now. Um, as I said, good morning. So good to have you here together. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about a genre of entertainment called reality shows. And you know, anytime someone does this and puts quotes on it, it means so called, right? So-called reality shows. They are uh, TV programs like The Bachelor, Bachelorette, Survivor, The Great Race. They're actually carefully curated and produced. So we question reality of those kinds of shows. But this morning I want to talk about a real reality show. Uh, in fact, some have called it the longest-running real reality show, quirky, slightly awkward, and interesting, BBC's Antiques Roadshow. You ever seen it? Fascinating. Interesting doodads, curious owners, expert appraisers, and the punchline, what we're all waiting for. What's it worth? And on uh, this show, Antiques Roadshow, there are some disappointments. But we all wait for the extraordinary surprises and the valuations that are far beyond our imagination. Take, for instance, the guest who brought a blue and white porcelain vase and left struggling for words when she found out the true value of the vessel, even though it was damaged. Photograph, is that up there? There's, there's the appraiser with the item. Expert antique appraiser, Alexandra Aguilar, was thrilled to come across this piece at Christchurch Park in Ipswich, England. Alexandra told the owner how the piece would have been rejected. It was actually a cast-off piece, but it was not destroyed. And it came into the owner's possession after her parents died. She just inherited it, didn't know what it was, what it was worth, and brought it. And uh, the expert said this would have been rejected because of a few stains and dots. However, despite the item being flawed, the appraiser left the owner shocked when she told her, that the item was worth, and I did, I did the conversion from, from uh, English pounds to U.S. dollars, but it was worth sixty dollars to $100,000. The owner began to tear up and exclaimed, Oh, I thought you were going to say sixty dollars to $100. Alexandra, the, the appraiser, stated, Even though it had been rejected, because of the flaws, it is still very rare and highly valuable. In, in quote, you have a piece of imperial Chinese porcelain in your house. So you have some imperfections and spots, don't you? 
and so do I. In fact, I have far more than just a few. I have significant flaws and a sketchy track record of life, and yet infinitely valuable. Do you believe that? So why don't we live it? Why don't we live as if this were true? And here's another question. What if we, can go, we, we could go from where we are at today, and what if we could actually grow up and into what God says is true about us, our true value? What if we actually could up our quality, improve our usefulness, and increase our honor in God's household. Our text this morning tells us how. Are you interested? All right, we, were, we are in a 12-week crockpot study. So that's instead of microwave, how-to, quick, quick topical sermons, we're actually taking 12 weeks to slowly digest Paul's second letter to Timothy. If you have your Bibles, open to 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 2. And this morning, we're only looking at three verses. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 through 22, where the Apostle Paul tells Timothy these words. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This morning, if we would take a step back, do this early rather than, than later, if we were just to take a step back and go, what is he talking about? What is the big idea here for Timothy? What is the bottom line for this uh, 35, 36, 37-year-old first-century pastor? What is the bottom line for you and me this morning, this is what I might say. This is my best guess, the stab that I take at this bottom line. And it's in your bulletin if you want to fill in the blanks. And it's this, I cannot be more gifted than I actually am. I'm adding that. I didn't have space up there to put it. But I, I can't become more gifted. Those things are fixed. God made me who I am, and when I came to faith in Christ, he gave me spiritual gifts, or a gift, and that's what it is. And I can't fix that. Uh, but also, I cannot guarantee greater spiritual outcomes. I cannot guarantee my spiritual impact. Two things that I am not in charge of. I'm not in control of these things. And in fact, we'll see in next week's text, if I can poach this, just to give you an example of this, 2 Timothy 2.25. And, and it's back to this idea of arguing about words, having theological food fights, and that Timothy and 
faithful ministers are not to get wound up in these, these theological arguments. And it says this, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that's how you're supposed to go about these theological food fights. God may perhaps grant them repentance. And, and the reason why I point that out is that there's not a guarantee. There's going to be unreasonable people in the church even. And I can't fix them. For Timothy, for me, I cannot be more gifted or guarantee spiritual impact. But there is something that I am responsible for. I can become a vessel of honor. That is within my means. That is within my scope of responsibility. Holy, useful, and ready. There's a great promise given to Timothy and the faithful men that he was supposed to pass these things along to. On down through history to you and me. That there is a hope for us as believers, as children of God, to cleanse ourselves, to be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And let me just ask you, what could be more compelling in this lifetime? What, is, what are you passionate about? What are you hungry for? What do you hope for your life, your impact, your legacy? But that you could become useful. That the Lord has an assignment or a good work. He knows where to find his man or his woman. You, you don't define what that is or what that looks like. You just know in the mind and heart of God, he knows who's his. And who's ready? What could be more compelling? In 2014, I did a backpack trip with my son Bradley in what are called the Maroon Bells Wilderness of Colorado. And on day four of hiking this big loop around the Maroon Bells, day four, we were passed up by a group of day hikers. They were like ultra marathoners. And they were doing the loop in a single day. Like a 30-mile run up over four extreme, like 13,000-foot passes. And in that group was a woman who asked if she could drop in with us and hike with us. We were more her pace. And my son Brad and I said, certainly. And so for about three hours that morning and into the afternoon, we hiked with Marion Martin, and came to find out that she was the winner of the first ever women's Tour de France in 1984. She had been inducted in the World Cycling Hall of Fame there in Boulder, Colorado. And as we walked and heard her story, and she discovered that I was a pastor. It was 2014. I was tired already. I'm serious, struggling with whether or not I would succeed as a senior pastor. 
This was a spiritual uh, getaway, a spiritual retreat. And when Mary and Martin heard that I was the pastor, a gospel minister of a congregation, she said, wow, that must be very fulfilling. And that was a bit of a wake-up call. A reality check. I can't be any more gifted than I am. I cannot guarantee my spiritual impact. But what a holy calling on my life. What a meaningful and compelling work that God has given to me. But listen, we, are, we believe in what is described in the scripture and in theology as the priesthood of believers. That really there's, there's little to no distinction between the pastor and the congregants. That I'm merely a leader among equals. And what I mean to say here is each one of us who are in Christ and a part of the true church of Jesus Christ has an equal calling. And what could be more meaningful or compelling than to be holy, set apart, useful to the master, and ready at any time, ready for any good work? What's more compelling? Well, do you want it? Does it interest you? Because 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 22 tells us how. Now, before we get there, because these things don't just show up in the middle. This is why we actually do expository teaching and do it in context. So in order to really unpack this and get the gravity, we want to just hit pause and give context once again. Those of you who have forgot, missed a Sunday or a couple um, Second Timothy, these are Paul's final words. This is his last writing, and it's a very personal, very urgent, very direct, very intense letter to his, quote, true son in the faith, someone that he had led to the Lord, someone that he had mentored into the ministry, Timothy. Paul is now in a second imprisonment, this one far more uncomfortable than his first one where he was chained to guards. Now he's chained to a wall, and he's not coming out of this prison, and he knows it. And so in an attempt to give him his, the, the last bit of, of jet fuel to Timothy, to give him some encouragement, to give him a vision for life and mission and faithfulness, Paul is wasting no time, wasting no ink. He is writing this letter from the heart, to the heart in his his interest is in the midst of the social pressure in the midst of persecution and the hard work and suffering that it takes to be a faithful minister paul wants to give him encouragement he he longs for timothy to be effective and fruitful and faithful and that's where he ends the letter timothy fulfill your ministry Last week, we added another or saw another wrinkle to the argument that it wasn't just persecution and hard work and, the, and that 
arduous effort and endurance, but it's, it's the whirlpools, the, the, the spin-outs, the going outside of the guardrails and getting, getting wrapped up in the wrong thing. And that Timothy was going to need to learn to distinguish between things that are important, not essential. Essential and nonsense. That a failure to do theological triage and that everything is a hill to die on would ruin Timothy's impact. And that was so important that it shows up multiple times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. See, there was already feisty, argumentative rabble in the church who loved to argue over words. They loved to cause dissension. They loved to be seen as right. Theological one-issue crusaders, cocky know-it-alls, all the way to false teachers and full-blown heretics like Hymenaeus and Philetus. This must have been very very unsettling to Timothy. To consider the conflict within the church and some of this divisive behavior. So Paul in verse 19, the one immediately preceding our text this morning, sets the record straight and says, Now, God's firm foundation stands. It's rock solid, Timothy. Don't stress out. There's always going to be something problematic in the confessing or professing church. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. And, and think about this. No one would dare mess with a Roman seal. An official letter uh, with a dab of fresh melted wax and a signet ring. You deliver that and there's evidence that you broke the seal, you're dead. And in the same way, this seal cannot be broken. God has a firm foundation for his church and it bears this seal. Two quotes from number 16. The Lord knows those who are his. Tim, don't stress out. God's going to have the final word. There are fakes and, and authentic. But then secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord, everyone that confesses or professes in the church, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We learned last week that these were sourced from number 16. This is the account of Korah's rebellion. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and 250 other rebels said, hey, we're all really smart. Hey, we're all, really, all chosen. Hey, we're all, we're all holy. Who died and made you in charge? Moses and Aaron. And remember, Moses, he wasn't looking for this job. Moses is just doing what God called him to. Aaron, the same, the same thing. And so he pleads with the Lord, and the Lord says, okay, tomorrow morning, get them, have them bring their, their uh, smoke buckets, fire censures, and, and stand on two sides, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you who's real and who's false. And the second instruction was, and move away from those guys, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and the 250 rebels, and their households, and their tents. Move away from them. Because you don't want to go down in judgment and the earth opens up and swallows them whole. These are 
the commandments. These are the seals on the foundation. Paul, in our text this morning, extends his illustration from the inscriptions found on the foundation, God's firm foundation, changes it, and now he's going to talk about vessels contained within the great house that has been built on God's firm foundation. You follow? So context. Wow, he's still using these metaphors and talking about the the kingdom of God and the church of the living Christ. And not only this firm foundation, but now there is a household and there's different kinds of objects contained therein. The vessels named in our text are of different materials. Some are of gold and silver, others of wood and clay. And related to their substance, they are of different use, different value, different honor. Household vessels for honor and some for dishonorable use. I brought an example this morning. Back here, got to go get it, excuse me. I'll bring it both in one bag. Almost 30 years ago, we received this vase, likely valuable, leaded crystal, as a wedding present. And we haven't broke it yet. That has contained dozens and dozens of bouquets of flowers over the years. We are now grandparents. And we have one of these. It is not going up there, for it belongs down here. Yes, it will be available this afternoon for Noli. It will not stay here. Question. Both these are useful. Neither one of these will be wasted. Which would you rather be? That's the question. Now, how do we go from that and talk about the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ? Is this even biblical? And that is your first sub-point. As human beings, we are equally loved, not equally honorable. And in the church, equally loved. But because of choices we make, not equally honorable. When we look at verse 20, verse 20, and he's talking about these these vessels in the household and the materials and the uses of these vessels. There are two possible interpretations. Both are faithful readings of the text. We don't know for sure which one Paul had in mind. But since both of them are true, we really don't have to decide. In fact, both of them can be put together in a single idea. So what are the two ideas? First off, is that perhaps Paul is talking that in the professing church, those who say, I'm a Christian, not even the local church, I'm I'm a Christian, that there are genuine believers who are saved by grace through faith, 
and those who are deceived. They're still relying on something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Matthew 13, records that Jesus told a parable, and it's come to be known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Do you then want us to go and gather them up? Like, we can judge, we can see. That's not wheat. We'll take care of this. No! Don't do it. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. And it, here's the quick idea here. is like, man, there's no, we're not fruit inspectors. We're not to judge. We are not the final word. We are not the one who sees that which is unseeable. So be careful with the judgment. Man, that guy can't be a Christian. Careful. You pull up the wrong thing. You cast judgment. Careful. Jesus says, don't do that. No less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. What's he talking about there? Well, in, in that analogy, he's talking about a weed called the lolium temulentum. The popular name is the bearded darnel. It's, it's been nicknamed, it's been nicknamed the mimic weed. It's exceedingly similar to wheat. So much so that they say that if we didn't plant and harvest wheat, we would lose this weed. It only comes in wheat fields. And it depends on the wheat harvest for its propagation. But the seed itself of this kind of weed has what is described as a strong soporific poison. What does that mean? It means it'll put you to sleep and enough of it will kill you. That these weeds are toxic, they are deceptive, they are dangerous or treacherous. And the idea here is in God's great house there are those who are truly saved and those yet unsaved. Authentic and counterfeits. And I'm convinced that a lot of the counterfeits don't even know it. See, two, two kinds of gospel that I think that we're tempted to believe. One is true, one is false. The false one is that God loves and blesses good people. And I look at myself and, and all the crazy in the world, and I have, not, I have not broken those commandments. I have a pretty good track record, and look who I've become. I even make a difference, I contribute. But that person, that man or that woman is trusting in their own goodness as did the rich young ruler. No one is good but God alone. And that leads us to the true gospel. God does not bless good people. God forgives bad people and makes them good. If you're here this morning and you're some person that thinks, you know what, I've been a Christian, I was raised Christian, 
I'm Christian. This is a Christian church. The Bible is what Christians believe. I like that the church teaches the Bible, but the question is, do you really believe that you're a sinner? That no one is good but God and that you're in desperate need of, of something beyond just being a little bit better. That you're in desperate need of the forgiveness of your past sins and your present sinful condition. Because that is the gospel. And this is the gospel that Jesus taught and demonstrated and paid for. John, the author of John's gospel, said in, his, in, his, in the first opening salvo that Jesus came to his own, his Jewish people, and they did not receive him. But to all those who did receive him, receive him as Savior, receive him as Lord, to them he gives the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Do you believe on his name for your goodness, for your forgiveness, for your salvation? If not, why not today? Why not right now? I believe I'm a sinner. I'm a be I believe Jesus is perfect. I believe he came for me. I receive Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. Won't you do that right now in your hearts? And become not a counterfeit, but an authentic Christian. For by grace we have been saved through faith and not of ourselves, not of works. It's a gift of God. Lest any man should boast. That's the first reading. The second is this. That within the true church, within the collection of genuine believers, there are those who are saved and joining God in his work of sanctification. And there are those who are genuinely saved who are resisting God in his work of sanctification. Sin, behaviors, patterns, attitudes, spirits that you go, not ready yet. No thank you. It's just who I am. And so forth. That there are those who are saved and sanctified, and those who are saved and spiritually stuck. Now consider, this is, these verses are being written to Timothy. Consider Timothy's 37 to 38 years old, we think. And Timothy has been a believer since childhood, according to chapter 1. Timothy's been acquainted with the scriptures from childhood. I think it's chapter 3. Timothy has been with Paul for years, 12 years that he followed and served alongside Paul. Timothy was trusted in ministry. He was effective as a pastor. And yet here is Paul warning him. Timothy, you're not there yet. You're not out of the woods yet. You are still temptable. So are we. So are we. That even in God's true church, and Timothy being an example, being given these words... Wheat and tares, honorable and dishonorable. There will be a variety of people in the world, a variety of people in the church. There will be a variety of vessels in God's great house until Jesus returns. And guess what? Equally loved. The scripture says that God loves even the fraud, the counterfeit. God loves every single person. 
Ezekiel 18.4, God says, all souls are mine. A few verses later, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his ways and live. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, speaking to a whole bunch of pagans, goes, goes, for we are his offspring. We are his offspring. Human beings are image bearers of the creator, even those who are in, are in, in rebellion or those who are self-righteous and don't believe that they need a savior. All souls, the Lord loves everyone. For God so loved the world that he, he gave his one and only son. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for all people. Jesus died for you. Even if you're a counterfeit. Won't you turn to the Lord today and become an authentic believer in Jesus Christ? Equally loved, but in the household not equally honorable. Everyone is loved, precious, and valuable, but check this out. We make ourselves cheap, base, and ignoble by the things we refuse to leave behind. But there is hope. Look at verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The word there, cleanses, is built on uh, the Greek word where we get the term catharsis or cathartic. And the idea is a thorough cleansing. And I want you to notice anyone, anyone, not just Timothy, anyone. So we know that this is applying to far more than just a pastor. Anyone who cleanses himself. Anyone who's willing to take responsibility and depart from iniquity. What we read in in verse 19, cleanse out thoroughly. Catharizo will prepare themselves. They'll be ready. God, what do you have? I'm here, I'm ready. This imperative to actually take responsibility is found throughout the scripture. Let me actually give you the fill in the blank and then talk about how, how this shows up again and again, Old Testament and New Testament. The fill in the blank is this, I'm empowered. If I'm in Christ, I already have what I need. I have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In him we are complete. Given everything pertaining to life and godliness. I am empowered and I am also responsible for my own spiritual hygiene. God has already given us what we need. Take responsibility for your own spiritual hygiene. Listen to the language found throughout the scriptures. First off, Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20. And this was given to the entire nation of the Jews. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourself aside as being special, precious, and holy. See yourself as unique and distinct consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for i am the lord your god keep my statutes and do them i'm the lord who sanctifies you i i do sanctify you join me in it i've already empowered it you shall be holy to me for i the lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine 
And guess what? They did not obey this commandment. So much so, and um, if you listen to our midweek podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, I said I'm, I'm going to be reading through First and Second Kings. I finished Second Kings last night. Uh, a couple days ago, I came across I came across the account of King of Judah named Manasseh. And in that account, he was an exceedingly wicked, wicked king of Judah. He was a Jewish man. He was included in the Leviticus text. Be my people. Consecrate yourselves. He did not. And so God said in 2 Kings 21, 13, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. If you won't clean yourself, I will have to do it for you, and it will be very painful, God says. And guess what? Once again, they did not. God stepped in, and a very small remnant was deported into exile in Babylon for 70 years. God would purify his people. And as they were about to be released, God gives them the commandment again through the prophet Isaiah Chapter 52, verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And these commandments could go, is there a difference between Israel and the church? Absolutely. But it's the people of God, and we have places where we have a direct application brought over into the New Testament Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So the commandment passes along to us, the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. And what is the idea? I am empowered and responsible to join God in what he is doing. I am empowered and responsible for my own spiritual hygiene. So how do I do this? Well, verse 22 gives us the protocol for our own spiritual hygiene. The plan on how to become a vessel for honorable use, holy, useful, and ready for every good work. Paul once again changes the metaphor. Went from the foundation to the household to the objects contained therein. And now he wants to talk about running. Yeah, we're going to go on a run. Welcome to cross country. Here we go. He says at the beginning of verse 22, so flee youthful passions. Flee, fuego. Sounds like fire in, the, in Latin, but this is uh, to flee away, to run away, uh, seek safety by flight. This is something that Paul had already shared in his first letter to Timothy, where he says in 1 Timothy 6.11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. In that context, we know what he's talking about. It's the love of money. It's the love of, of uh, material possessions in getting rich. Flee these things. And what's the idea? There are some times that we need to, need to stand our ground and resist temptation. But there are also kinds of temptations where God says, do not stand your ground. Do not resist. Run for your life. And one of those is the love of wealth. Another one, though, is this thing he calls youthful passions. The word for passion in the Greek, epithemia, 
a desire, a craving, a longing, a desire for what is forbidden, or even it could be just entitled lust. What are these youthful lusts? Soul cravings that are unique to our youthfulness. Characteristics of youth. Sins of youth. Think about Timothy. He's 37 to 38. Um, he's passionate for the Lord. He wants to be faithful. But he's still temptable. What are the kinds of things that could still tempt a 37 to 38 year old young man that passionately wants to love and pursue God? Sexual purity. Absolutely. It's well within the context here. However, sexual purity, let, let me just say, if, if you're struggling with something like that, you're not going to get free on your own quietly. And we're going to come back to that in a moment, but just keeping it a secret in an, some kind of dark corridor, dark closet, will just fester and get worse and worse and worse, and you're on the path to becoming a dirty old man. You will not escape that on your own. You need others involved in that. But that's not the only sin of youth. In this context, both preceding and following, I, we get a clue to another, perhaps more obvious sin of youth or youthful passion, and that is the tendency of young men, maybe even young women, to quarrel to be hot-headed as there are few people more argumentative than testosterone-fueled young men, those who just have to win arguments, demand respect, be seen as intelligent rather than to simply teach the truth. Youthful passions. Here's the context to just demonstrate before and after. 2 Timothy 2, 14, 16, and then 23. We recharge them not to quarrel about words. Avoid irreverent babble. Then verse 23, on the other side of our verses today, have nothing to do with foolish arguments. You know that they breed quarrels. So there are these sins of youth. And, and man, this is, this is me. Uh, I hope I'm growing out of it. Unfortunately, some of us never do. But to be arrogant, opinionated, harsh, know-it-all jerks. And it's all over the pastoral epistles. Don't be that guy. Don't be that woman. Flee these youthful passions. Including this feistiness, this desire to win an argument, to be right, to be respected. Run away as fast as you can. However, this cannot be Timothy's only goal and focus. We must run away from some things at the same time. We've got to have a place to fix our eyes. We've got to have a worthy goal. We can't just be looking over our shoulder. I'm not that anymore, am I? Am I not? We've got to be looking forward. And that's why he says in this formula, flee youthful passions and pursue Pursue what? Righteousness, faith, and love. The formula, again, uh, from 1 Timothy 6, 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Remember, love of money. Pursue 
righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, the word pursue in both these texts, dioko, is to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing, to run after them. You know, Aristotle was the one who said, nature abhors a vacuum. Said this to emphasize the reality that empty or unfilled spaces are unnatural. In, in some, they actually create a vacuum and, and pull things into them. They go against the laws of nature and physics, so the universe wants to flood into a vacuum space. Nature abhors a vacuum, but so, so do our souls. And you cannot, I cannot outrun youthful passions without a better goal. We cannot merely flee from sinful desire. Uh, can't say anything. Sinful desire. Because in doing that, I'll be fixated on that thing. And while I'm fixated on that thing, it will become more and more present as an obsession and inflame those dark desires. However, if I fix my eyes on the ideal, the virtuous, the model, as I fix my eyes upon Jesus the Christ, I begin to forget the sinful desires that plague my soul. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Just a moment on those words. Righteousness in the Greek is that which is integrous and right and complete. Faith. This is the word pistis, it's, it's belief, but it's really the way we see the world, the lens in which we understand our lives and our existence, uh, how we see God and the gospel in our mind and our will and in our emotions, that when push comes to shove and the chips are down, we still believe that God is good and God will win the day. Righteousness and faith and love, this is the word in the Greek, agape. Genuine, self-sacrificing, others-centered care and concern. It's not about me. It's about others. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I love this word, irene, in the Greek, is the state of national tranquility. There are not these fist fights or these food fights or these argument matches where there's winner and losers. There's conversation and learning to talk things through without a war. Pursue these things. We must both flee and follow. Run away from and run in the direction toward at the same time. But I want you to notice the last phrase here in verse 22. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with, along with, Along with those who call on God or call on the Lord from a pure heart. Still, it takes us back to the introduction of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. For the goal of the commandment, the aim of our charge, is another way to say that, is love that issues from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. The commandment is important. The charge is important. Doctrine is important. Theology is important. Teaching is important. But if it doesn't actually turn into love, something is messed up. Something is dysfunctional. 
And so Timothy, even though truth really matters and doctrine really matters, the thing that he should be after is righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But notice he's supposed to do it along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Sounds a little bit selective. Sounds a little bit like this again, like, ew, ah. How do you dice that up? And, and to explain that, here's the last fill in the blank. Timothy is supposed to minister to everybody. Lost, found, honorable, dishonorable, you name it. Minister to everyone. But run with those you want to emulate. You are going to become like the company you keep. This is what 1 Corinthians 15, says, Do not be, be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You ever notice a complainer in a group? And pretty soon more of the group is complaining. You ever see that? You ever seen people that hang out with angry people? Begin to think that that's cool. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger. Nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Minister to them. Do not ally with them. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise will become wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so what's the principle? What's the takeaway? Paul wants Timothy to be a great minister, but those that he allies with, partners with, those he follows and learns from and runs beside closest need to be the kinds of people that he wants to be like. Minister to everyone, run with those you want to emulate. The pursuit of righteousness, the escape from ungodliness is a team sport. It's a team sport. It's not to be done al alone, but along with other believers. Connection with the community of faith is essential. Essential if we are going to escape these sins of youth and become all that God has called us to be. So question for you this morning, who's your team? Who are your spiritual running partners? Who is your true spiritual community? And what can we do? What can you do? What can I do to foster a greater sense of running with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart? Well, first off, your physical bodily presence in the gathering church matters. For thousands and thousands of years, the visible church has gathered together physically on Sunday mornings. And I believe with my whole heart that's still the best thing today. So show up. Secondly, move to smaller gatherings. The reality is that there's a lot more ministry that happens in a circle than in rows. We go deeper next to each other rather than in front of each other. This was modeled in the ancient church, Acts 2, 46. Day by day, attending the temple together, a big group, and breaking bread in their homes, small group. Who's your small group? Thirdly, 
in those relationships or any relationship. Be a man or woman of spiritual substance in those relationships. Don't just go surfacey. Ask questions. How are you doing? How's your heart these days? What do you believe God is trying to teach you at this point in your journey? And then offer to pray and pray right there on the spot. Doesn't matter who's watching. Do it in public. Do it at, at times that you go, this isn't appropriate, so what? Pray for each other. Timothy was to monitor his soul. He was supposed to exercise spiritual hygiene. He was supposed to do it with those alongside in a step in front of him. He was to be a vessel of honor, holy, useful, and ready. So are we. I cannot be more gifted. I can't guarantee spiritual in impact. But I can become a vessel of honor, holy, useful, and ready. Let's pray. Father, what a compelling call. We're not in charge of how the story goes for us. What kind of good works that you're going to offer us. But Lord, we can certainly do what you call us to and depart from iniquity, run away from sinful desires, sins of youth, pursue righteousness in faith and love and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Lord, let us be those people. Let this church be marked by this virtue, and we humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.